Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We've been in Luke. We will be in Luke for a very long time, uh, but we have been in Luke for the last several, I guess the last month month or so, month, month, month maybe a month and a half. Um, so we've been in Luke for a good bit, and we will be in Luke probably for more than a year. Um, but this morning, we, because we're in the season of Advent, we're going to look at the birth story uh, where Jesus shows up and where everything begins, and we're looking in Matthew this morning. Now, we have already studied where Luke, came, where Luke talks about where Mary had her experience with uh, Gabriel making the announcement. We've talked about the shepherds and their experience. We've talked about Zechariah, or Zachari- am I right? Zechariah, the father. Yeah, I think Zechariah, right? So we've talked about Zechariah, and we've talked about Elizabeth. And their annunciation of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, um, not ba- he's not a Baptist, just in case anybody thinks that, he's not a Baptist, he's ba- he dunks people in water, they call him Baptizer, Dunker, John the Dunker, really what he is. So, um, that's neither here nor there, we're going to move on. Matthew then covers some stories that are not covered in the Gospel of Luke, and this is one of them. This is, uh, the question in the Gospel of Luke is, what about Joseph, what happened here with Joseph, the father, or, or the earthly, uh, I guess, you know, um, the earthly father of Jesus, who's on the ground, the dad, uh, who is not biological to Jesus, ha- what happened with him? How did this all play out with him? And so this morning we want to look at that story, and we want to engage that text, and there is a particular prophecy that is brought up in the book of Matthew, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we read that this morning as we kicked off the service. And I don't know if you were paying attention when we read that, but the entire context where that is given, where that prophecy is given in the Old Testament, is really depressing. Because basically Ahaz tells God, I'm not going to ask you for an answer. And God says, fine, I'm going to give you one anyway. And by the way, I'm going to wipe you guys out with Assyria. Yay! And so we have this incredible prophecy where he says, Behold, a virgin will give birth, and you will call his name Emmanuel. means God with us. And so Matthew takes that prophecy and ties it to Jesus. And says, see, Mary is a virgin giving birth to a child who will be Savior, who indeed will be God with us. So, with that in mind, and seeing what we're looking at this morning, let's dive in. Chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read all the way through verse 23. So, let's read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, as he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May the Lord have the blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we want to, look, this is a very short story, and it's very brief. And we want to we see uh, some great and powerful truths in this story that that jump backwards and forward for us. So first, let's start with just understanding what's going on here. Mary, who is betrothed, or she is, she is essentially already married to Joseph, because in Hebrew culture, if you were betrothed, you were spoken for. Now, the marriage was not official, because she was not yet officially married to him, and at this time of betrothal, he could break it off at any point, but breaking it off meant divorce. It means you have to divorce. You don't just end a betrothal. The betrothal is, is an agreement that is set upon your... It, once you've made that agreement, unless there is massive sin, like she murders your parents, you can't walk away from that betrothal. It was a legal, binding agreement that was both legal and religious because they were one and the same to the Jews. Political system and religious system were the same to the Jews. So this is a legally binding and religious binding. This is a before God kind of covenant agreement that he cannot break and she cannot break. And they are going to be officially married. They just not have yet had the ceremony and they have not consummated their marriage. So they are still uh, in process here. So... Um, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, so note what's going on here. Mary, who has this legal obligation, who is going to do this, who has everything is planned out. Everything's ready. She is going to be married. There's no question about it. All of a sudden is found to be pregnant with child. Found to be pregnant with child. This word found means to find out without seeking. Like she starts showing. So they find out. Nobody's asked her. Nobody, nobody suspects her of anything. The word here indicates that, that she was, it just kind of appeared and happened. And so she's, Waiting, and, and you know the story because we read it in Luke. She's, she's already been told, and she knows what's going on, but nobody else does. And maybe she's told Joseph, maybe she's told her parents, maybe she's talked to them. We know she told Zachariah and Elizabeth. We know she's talked to them. But she is, she is found to be with child. So put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. You're betrothed to a young woman. Your life is 
going just according to plan. You have a business. You are a grown man now, no longer apprenticing under your father's work, no longer apprenticing under whoever you apprenticed under. You are now starting your own business, maybe even have a house, maybe even you've gotten a house, you've got this, this plot of land. You know that, that you desire to build a home and to have kids and a family, and you identified this great family down the way, Mary, and she's beautiful. And you have negotiated with her father, you've paid the dues, you've paid the dowry, the dowry has been paid, the families have met and they've agreed, and you are even planning the wedding. Maybe even building the ceremonial, because you're a carpenter, maybe even building the ceremonial chopa that you sat under, right? The, the big, um, Jewish people had a big like gazebo type thing that they would build, and it was built specifically for the wedding. And it's immaculate. It was beautiful when they did it. And it was this massive structure, and that's where the two stood under when the rabbi came and gave the, the benediction, Baruch Atah Adonai, the Lord our God. He has created two to be in union together, and he, he, uh, he gives that, that blessing to the couple. Like This is the big ceremonial uh, arch that they sit under and stand under and, and at one point dance under during the wedding because Hebrew weddings are a lot more fun than American weddings. And they, uh, they, this is where they're delighting in each other. And so Joseph is excited and he's, he's geared up and he knows he's got this track. He knows I'm going to be working for this many years. We're going to get married and then we're going to have our year-long honeymoon. Jews had a year-long honeymoon. Let that sit in for you. A year to build their house and their family and to get to know each other and to really unify husband and wife. A year. Awesome. So, if any of you ever have kids and you want to give them a tremendous gift, which I will probably not be able to afford to give my own kids, a year-long honeymoon. Wow. So, anyway, he, he's ready for it, he's prepared for it, and then he gets news from a neighbor. Hey, uh, have you talked to Mary? No. What? Why? Have you talked to Mary? You need to talk. You need to talk to your betrothed. His his family begins to get nervous. I don't know if you had brothers or sisters. The Bible doesn't tell us, but you can imagine that phone call, right? Your brother calling you. Hey, what's wrong with your betrothed, man? What are you talking about? Well, she looks and acts pregnant. No, no. What did you do, Joseph? <laughs> I didn't do, what are you talking, nothing, nothing. We have done nothing. We have behaved appropriately. We've done nothing. Joseph, you need to talk to this woman. You need to go talk to her. Some other people in town start to notice. Oh, they're not, they're not married. Did you hear? Did you hear? They haven't, they haven't had the ceremony and she's, you know... I don't know if she's just gaining weight, but she's found to be with child. And this is awkward for Joseph. It's difficult for him. He could lose prestige. He could lose, I mean, this is a society where morality mattered. Unlike our culture, where morality doesn't seem to matter, in that culture, if you were immoral in this behavior, if, if, 
If your betrothed stepped out on you, you could lose business. You could lose your livelihood. You could lose reputation. She's found to be with child. No one's examining or asking her, but she's found to be with child. And Matthew wants to be very clear that she has not behaved incorrectly in any stretch of the imagination and that Joseph has not behaved incorrectly or inappropriately in any stretch because he says she is found to be with child, look at it, by the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Often God works in this way. He gives us a miracle that is uncomfortable for us to hold. It's uncomfortable for us to hold that might make us look a little odd to the rest of the world. Or he gives us a commission that is difficult for us to justify until he has brought it to fruition. He gives us a job that is difficult for us to justify until he has brought it to fruition. Anyone who has ever planted a church knows what that feels like to some degree. Because the first thing that happens when you tell somebody, I'm going to start a church is somebody inevitably, doesn't matter how, what, doesn't matter your reasoning, doesn't matter who you are, somebody goes, why? There are churches in the world already. And then you have to look at them and go, because God told me. Because a good church planter, a good church plant team, a good church plant says, we are going to obey the Lord and not man. And we seek His approval and not God's approval. And that's a very difficult line to walk. And so Joseph, his betrothed, is found with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, it matters that she is from the Holy Spirit, right? That this child is from the Holy Spirit. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Did you notice it doesn't say the seed of the man? Here's what's weird about that prophecy. Women don't have seed. That's not how that works. Men have seed. All through the scripture, men are the ones who have seed. Abraham, seed. David, seed. It's not Bathsheba's seed that becomes the next king. It's David's seed that becomes the next king. It's not not Sarah's seed. It's Abraham's seed. Right? So... So men have seed, women don't. That's why this prophecy ought to immediately trigger in your head virgin birth. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and and her seed, and her seed will crush your head. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Jesus is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. So get this, right after we... Humanity turns against God. God redeems with the prophecy. Almost immediately. It's in the curse given to the snake, not the woman. It's in the curse that is given right away. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. Isaiah Uh, So that's Genesis 3.15, the seed here belonging to the the male, but this is the seed of a woman. This matters. And then Isaiah 7.14, the young woman or virgin shall bear a son. 
Now, this is important. There's a Hebrew word here uh, used in Isaiah 7.14, which means it literally should translate young woman in Isaiah 7.14. But it's young woman commonly with the understanding that it's a virgin, a young woman who's before the age of childbearing or uh, too young to have a child. The young woman shall bear a son. That's the, that's the interpretive thing. So if you're ever on the internet and you see somebody going, that Isaiah passage isn't talking about the virgin birth. It is. It is talking about the virgin birth. Tell them no. I, I know Hebrew and I read Hebrew and I'm telling you that the word can be translated virgin. It's perfectly legitimate to say virgin shall bear a son. It's perfectly legitimate. So he says here, uh, we, we see these two prophecies being fulfilled here. Uh, Matthew, the, the second reason that it matters that, the, that she's born, that she, he emphasizes the Holy Spirit birth here, is because if he doesn't emphasize the Holy Spirit birth, then he's not telling you the whole truth of Jesus. Instead, he's only giving you partial. And what else did he only give you? Partial of the character of Christ. It's very important that they... Uh, explain that he's that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was in college, this is uh, just for fun, and I want to encourage you with something. When I was in college, I had a professor who said, if you, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a room of about 35 students in a religion class, uh, life and teachings of Jesus, uh, and the doctor, the professor up front, I'll leave his name out just because this isn't a positive story on his end, but he standing at the front, uh, a professor who I notoriously liked to argue with, um, he would stand at the front and he, he said, all right, everybody in class, if you got saved before the age of eight, raise your hand. So almost every hand goes up. If you got saved before the age of ten, raise your hand. Now every hand is up. And then he said, if you knew what a virgin was before you got saved, put your hand, or leave your hand up. Everybody else put your hand down. Every hand in the room went down except mine. My dad was an obstetrician and gynecologist, um, so I knew. So it raised. So my hands up, and he looked at me weird. And then he said to the rest of the class, "So the virgin birth had no effect on your salvation." Thank you. No, just just get that out of the way. No, bad. So he he said the virgin birth had no effect on your salvation. So you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. And I, I raised my hand. That day I got kicked out of class. I raised my hand and I talked and I, I wouldn't stop. It has everything. It's, it's critically important. Because if it's not true, then Matthew and Luke are lying. And all of Christian history is a lie. If it's not true. If it's not true, then he's not the seed of a woman. He's the seed of a man. If it's not true, then the Hebrew theology that the seed, that sin is passed down through the man, means that Jesus was born with an inherited sin, with, a, with Adamic sin. That he's not the second Adam, but is of Adam himself. Romans 5. If it's not true, then Jesus is not God. It is true. It is true. He was born of a virgin. And it matters. 
It matters that we believe the Bible when it says things. It matters to your salvation. It matters. And that professor went, Mr. Elkins, you can be excused. And I said, I don't want to be. He said, you're going to be. And I politely left class and came back next week with more arguments. I must have driven that professor nuts. In hindsight, I wasn't very polite. So, we see this matters. The virgin birth is not only a validation of these prophecies, it's also a validation of Jesus' divinity. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's born of a man, he has a start from a man. But this is an eternal being who's entering into humanity. We have this issue of inherited sin. If you are of Adam, then you have this issue of inherited sin being of Adam or in Adam before salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die. And then in Romans 5 we see through one man's trespass, all die. Jesus must be perfect in order to be the atonement, the atoning sacrifice. He lives a perfect, holy, spotless life. That means there is no blemish in him whatsoever. He is the seed of woman. He is born of a virgin and has in himself a nature that is entirely neutral, what Paul calls the second Adam. Not of Adam, but the second Adam. A new, fresh start is found in Jesus Christ. And oh, we find that same start when we trust in Him. We trust in Christ and we are given His covering and a new nature that gives us a fresh start, a clean start. And then He doesn't stop there. He puts His Holy Spirit into our lives that we would know Him, walk like Him, and become more like Him each day. The virgin birth matters. Before she had been betrothed, or when she was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that we have the awkward understanding of where Joseph is and the importance of this, let's look at Joseph. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved quietly to divorce her. So first, Joseph is a good man. Let's look at his character. He's a good man. He's just. He does the right thing. The word there is dikaio, right? Dikaios, which is uh, just or righteous. It's the same, Hebrew, the same Greek word as just and righteous. So he's a good man. He's a just man. He's the type of guy that you make, uh, you put in charge of things at churches. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. And he's unwilling to put her to shame. This is a big deal here in an honor-shame culture. That he's unwilling to put her to shame indicates that he is willing in himself to bear shame on her behalf. This is a beautiful statement. In an honor-shame culture where he is, like I said earlier, risking everything by his reputation. He's risking everything in order to maintain this marriage and divorce her quietly, in an honor-shame culture, what he should do is publicly denounce this young woman as someone who has cheated on him and who he is no longer expected to stay married to. 
That's what he should do. That's, that's the law of the land. That's the way things should work. This is the Hosea passage. What he should do is drag this woman out publicly and embarrass her and then toss her back to her family. And her family has to deal with her now. That's what he should do in an honor-shame culture. And what is, what's, a, what's tragic about this is that the culture at the time would have heralded him and said, that's right, that's right. That woman needs to go back to her father. She clearly was not trained up well when she was young, and it's the family's fault, so the family must take care of her now. So Joseph, you are free of this. Here's your writ of divorce from the rabbi. She is out of your life for good. You get to move on. And she gets shamed and he gets to move on with his life. Because this public, I have been good and she has been bad. Good and bad. Right? Joseph is a just man. A just man looks at somebody else who has sinned and goes, you know, they're no worse than I am. Because a just man understands that he's not just. He's not righteous. The only thing that makes him anywhere near just is that he sees that very truth. And I'm not good enough, but Jesus is. Joseph looks at Mary and goes, I'm not going to shame her. I'm not going to put her out there. I'm not going to do that. Why? I don't know. Maybe Joseph felt like he wasn't, like he knew his own heart. Maybe he knew his own heart and he was like, I'm not going to just throw her out and kick. I'm not going to ruin her life so that mine continues. Maybe Joseph didn't care about society. Maybe Joseph was one of those guys that we really admire who's like, I don't care what society thinks. I'm going to do what's right no matter what. And I, you know, I'll lose everything. I don't care. My conscience will be clear. Maybe he was that kind of man. Maybe he was the type of man that, that would look at Mary and have pity in his heart for her and go, that girl's crazy. I talked to her, and she said, the Holy Ghost did it. She's nuts. Like, maybe, maybe he thought that something had happened. Maybe he thought she had been raped. And he didn't want to bring any more pain to her. And he thought, I can't marry her, but I'll, I'll do this quietly and away from the public eye. And I'll just move somewhere else. I'll just move somewhere else where people will leave us alone. Uh, I was asked a question a couple weeks ago, why did... Joseph and Mary never go back to Nazareth. Why'd they stay in Bethlehem? This might give us some indication. People are awful. And maybe Joseph didn't want, and Mary didn't want to keep dealing with it. So he's a good man. He's unwilling to put her to shame. He resolves to divorce her quietly. Maybe he thought she was crazy. Maybe she, he was just overwhelmed and, and was like, I'm just going to take care of this privately, quietly. He considered his situation. Look at it. He said in verse 20, but as he considered these things, so he is in deep turmoil thinking about these things. And any young man or young woman who has ever had to make a big decision in life, you know what this feels like. This is a weight that is on your shoulders and you feel like you've, you've got to make a decision and it is heavy. So as he's pondering these things, he's thinking deeply about how to honor her, how to take care of this situation, how to, how to move on from a difficult spot. You see, God often lets us think about things. God often lets us, lets us ponder things and lets us wait towards things and lets us wait for 
him to move, and, and he often puts it in our heads that we ought to think about what's going on before we actually make the move to do something. He often puts weight on us that we would think and consider before he shows up. And then he shows up and ruins all our thinking. I say ruin. He really fixes all our thinking. But have you ever noticed you've got all these grand plans and ideas and then God shows up and is like, no, I'm going to keep you right here. You've got all these thoughts of, of great things to do and God's like, I'm going to move you to this part of town. I'm going to, I'm going to put this person in your life. They're going to take all your time. And you're going to have to deal with it. And you, frustrated, do what you must, and yet God interrupts our thinking. And what a glorious thing it is when God interrupts our considering. When we're considering what to do and God shows up and goes, no, you're going to do this. This is the answer. What a glorious thing it is and how uncomfortable it is and yet how, how comforting it is to know that God has a commission and a plan and He's working it out and He wants you involved in it. How comforting. So the angel shows up here. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Stop there. This is David, the king. Back in Matthew chapter 1, you had the uh, genealogy there that tracks the genealogy. And what's the highlight? Do you remember? We went through it. The highlight is David. DVD, 14. 646. Right. No, sorry. What, 464. Sorry. DVD, right? That's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, the fourth letter. I can't count. So DVD, right? This is David, 14. 14 generations from Abraham to, to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. 14 generations from the exile to now. And you've got DVD, David, the king. There shall be a king who will sit on the throne of David forever. Joseph gets visited by an angel. Joseph, a just man, unwilling to put his wife to shame, who's sitting back kind of pondering, how am I going to do this in such a way that she is not put to shame and the child is taken care of? How am I going to, how am I going to do this in such a way that the child is taken care of, the woman is taken care of, and, we are, and she is not ashamed? How am I going to do this? And he, he gets this visit from an angel who reminds him this is a royal issue. Joseph, son of David, Joseph of the line of the king, he's reminding him his circumstance is not just some random carpenter in Nazareth, but it's somebody of the lineage of the king David, where the promised Messiah was going to come from. Immediately, Joseph should have woken up and gone, Oh, this decision matters. This decision matters. And so he, he says, Son of David, do not fear. You've got, you got to love every single angel telling you, Do not fear. Do not fear. I, just, I hope I'm never visited, but evidently everyone is afraid of angels. Do not fear. Do not fear. In this, in this case... Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Second time he validates that. So this angel says, one, do not fear your circumstances, Joseph. Do not fear the circumstance that God has put you in, because God has put you there. This is a child conceived of by the Holy Spirit. God has done this, Joseph. That's his first response. God has done this. God is greater than your circumstances. Indeed, he is moving in your circumstance. Joseph is told God did this. He said, she will bear a son. Genesis 3, 15. She is going to bear a son. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, but if you watch early on in the Old Testament, just watch closely as you read. It will say things like, they named him Noah, for surely this child will give them rest. She had a son and she named him Cain because she with the, has brought forth a son by the help of the Lord. They think they're giving birth to the Messiah. I don't know if you realize that. That's happening over and over in the scripture. She had a son. They keep saying it. She bore a son. And they named him Isaac. She bore a son. And there were two. And one came out holding the heel of the other. Esau was the first and Jacob was the second. And you've got all through Scripture this idea that there are sons being born. And these sons are Messiah figures, Messianic figures. And what you see all through the Old Testament is not the guy. Like That's what happens. It's, it's like a parrot. Not the guy. Not the guy. Not the guy. Right? Like it happens over and over. And you got David, and they're all excited. David is going to be the king. He's going to restore Israel. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and all of a sudden it's not the guy. Right? Why have you despised the word of the Lord, David? Right? You've got, uh, before that, you've got Joshua, and he's going to conquer. He's going to conquer the land and set up the kingdom. And he's, he's charging into the land. And then at the end of Joshua, you've got, by the way, these are the lands he couldn't conquer. Not the guy. Back further, you've got Noah. Noah leads the people. He redeems eight people on a boat. Everyone else in the world gets wiped out. And they land, and what happens? You're thinking, he has brought rest, and then he's drunk and naked in a field. Not the guy. Over and over. Maybe Abraham. Abraham's called by God to go to the new place. Surely he's going to be the guy. Not the guy. He lies about his wife. Twice. In the same way. Figure he'd learn his lesson the first time. He doesn't. And then his son does it. Isn't that great? To know that God still sticks with Abraham, even though Abraham lies twice and does the same exact error two times in a row? you got this all throughout the Old Testament. Not the guy, not the guy, not the guy. Even you get to the prophets, and Elijah destroys 400 prophets of Baal. And then what's the next scene? He is running in fear. He just slaughtered 400 prophets by himself after calling fire down from heaven during a drought. And it's pouring rain. These miracles happen. And what happens next? He's in a cave going, Lord, I fear for my life. You're kidding me. You should be standing at the front of the army like, I just slaughtered 400 men by myself. I'm the bomb. Instead, you're in a cave hiding? Not the guy. Right. So here, Joseph is given... The prophecy 
This is the guy. Joseph, son of David. She's going to have a son. She is going to have a seed. This is the guy. This is the guy. I mean, I just, if I was the angel, I'd be like, <laughs> telling him, well, bouncing, right? She's going to have a son, and this is the one! <laughs> like, he's so excited. She's bare a son, and you will call his name the Lord saves. For he will save his people from their sins. I wonder if the choir angels were mad because they didn't get to be at this one. Like, just the one got to be there. And that's why they got to go to the shepherds, right? Because it was like, fine, we'll let you go to the shepherds. Right? And this one, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophet Isaiah said, the guy is coming. The guy is coming. All this took place. This awkwardness for Joseph, all this took place. This awkward state for Mary and Joseph, this, this certainly going to be gossiped about situation for the two of them. All this internal turmoil where Joseph was pondering and considering what was going on. All this uncomfortable circumstance took place. Our God works in uncomfortable circumstances to bring about his perfect plan, always. He works in our uncomfortable circumstances to bring about his perfect plan, and often we feel as though the things he has called us to do or called us to be are uncomfortable. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. God promised to come and dwell with us. Now, all that said, Jump back to the idea, to what we read in Isaiah at the beginning of the service. Ahaz, a king who is shaken by every wind that blows, a king who is a reed blown in the wind. He just bends with everything. No backbone. Ahaz, who had sought an alliance with Egypt when, uh, when the Assyrians were rising to power, who sought an alliance with the Assyrians when they were rising to power and who, who had trouble deciding whether or not he was going to be Israel's king or he was going to be a national kind of uh, puppet king. Ahaz, this frightened king who didn't know how to stand up to anything, he is told by God, ask me for something. Do you understand what that means? That means Ahaz has not asked the Lord for anything. God is so exasperated with Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 that he goes, would you just ask for something? Would you just ask for it? You're, you're the king in my nation. Ask for anything. It doesn't matter how big it is, ask for it. And Ahaz goes, I will not ask of the Lord. I will not put the Lord to the test tries to make himself look holy before a holy, righteous God who gave him a command to ask. So God says, fine, boy. That's John Elkins' translation. But that's what I imagine is going on. And he outlines this. You are going to end up 
that I'm going to decimate everything. This land that is so beautiful and prosperous is going to bear thorns and briars and thistles and wild animals are going to overtake it because they'll worship me when you don't. They'll worship me while you don't even ask. You know, every Sunday I drive past this uh, storage building over there down by where I live. It's a big, like, steel building, and, and there's buzzards that live all over it. Every Sunday, they are, I don't know if they're worshiping. It looks like it. Every Sunday, they're gathered around together, and one of them inevitably has his hands up, has his wings up. <laughs> while the rest are facing him, or her, or it, I don't know, I, don't know, I can't tell. And, and he's got, they got their hands up, and all of the others are right here, just congregated. There's got to be 50 of them. Hands up. And every week, my kids, we drive by, and they go, the buzzards are worshiping. Look, the vultures are having worship service. And then occasionally, we'll drive back by, and they'll all be gone, and one of my kids will go, they all went to lunch after church. But I got to thinking about this, how, how, how tragic it is that I also drive past a bunch of houses where no hands are raised. And nobody's going. I tell you, that's the sentiment in Isaiah 7. Look, the buzzards will worship me. You don't even ask. That's the sentiment there. So I'm going to wipe this land clean, and there's going to be briars and thorns, and sheep are going to go wild. Sheep. Sheep are going to go wild. Sheep. I know there are wild sheep, but there's not many. There's not many wild sheep. And you know, how, you know why sheep are domesticated so easily? Because they're domesticated really easily. They're dumb. They're not violent. Oh, they bite and they ram you, they'll bump you with their head. But they'll ram you with their head and then run off the side of a cliff. They're not exactly the brightest, they're not the brightest animal. Like, they're just not that clever. Now, if you raise sheep and you're watching online, don't send me an email about that. I love you. Don't do that. Sheep, God says, sheep will worship me. They will, they will run. I'm going to give the land to wild. I'm going to, I'm going to let it go back to the wild. Because you won't even ask. I tell you, that's the sentiment. That same sentiment that we can think when we drive by and see vultures worshiping and then realize that the houses of worship of God are near empty. And that people are staying away for whatever reason. Ahaz was king he was searching for help from anybody other than God. Searching for help from anybody other than God. And God said, ask me. Ask me for it. And Ahaz won't. So God says, look. Look. You won't ask. I'm going to give you a sign. That there's going to be a young woman who's going to give birth to a kid. Now, Isaiah is talking in a double-meaning prophecy here. This prophecy has two meanings. Often, before you get skeptical, often in Scripture, we find dual-meaning prophecies. We find God saying, I'm going to raise up a 
king who's going to conquer. And we see Assyria does it. And then we see in the New Testament, Paul referring to that as Jesus. We see uh, frequently in the New Testament prophecies like this one, where Isaiah is going to have a kid. Isaiah has a son named Emmanuel. He, his wife gives birth to a kid named Emmanuel. We know because in Isaiah 8, 8, he says it again. And then it fulfills it later on in the book. He has a son. He names the son Emmanuel. And the son is a direct prophecy to what's going to happen to Israel. That if Israel won't worship the Lord, he's going to turn Israel back to a wild plot of land. Because even the land will worship the Lord more than Israel will. So Ahaz is told he's going to lose his kingdom, but that God is going to be with his people. And the beauty of this prophecy is not that Isaiah's kid is going to rise up and and restore Israel, but that God is going to be with his people, and he's going to take care of them, and he's going to bring them out of exile eventually into the kingdom of God, and they will be his, and he will be theirs, and he will dwell with them. John 1, the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Isaiah, years before, spoke of what he could not see and what he longed for. And we get to see the fulfillment of God with us. We get to stand with the buzzards and worship the Lord. We get to stand with all creation with our hands raised saying, We love the Lord God Almighty. He's our God and He guides our every step because He's with us. Not only is He with us, but He's indwelling us. Colossians 3.10 He indwells our hearts. He gives us a new nature and He then persists in walking with us and redeeming us day by day, cleansing us constantly. How amazing is this God who decides to dwell with His people? How amazing is this? This is the prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is the guy. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Unlike Ahaz, who was looking for help from everywhere else in the world, we can simply turn our eyes to heaven and say, Lord, help. And he will come. He has come. And we have him. He has come. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, the name that is above every name, at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord.